This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Sophie Tannhauser about her book titled Worn, A People's History of Clothing, just out in 2022 from Penguin. Um, This book explores some key fabrics, which I thought was a very cool structure and also very interesting, linen, cotton, silk, synthetics, and wool, um, to help us understand literally the clothes on our bodies, how they got there, um, both kind of currently and historically, and helps us just better understand this thing that I think for a lot of us, or maybe just for myself, is around us all the time, but maybe doesn't get the thought that it deserves. Um, And so Sophie, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast to help illuminate this thing that is a lot of our lives. Um, And I'm really glad we have the opportunity to talk about it properly. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write this book? Sure. Um, Well, I uh, am a writer and a person who's always liked clothing, Um, as many people do. It's a wonderful form of creative expression and a tactile sense of pleasure. And I think I started to become convinced of a problem with clothing sometime in my late teens or early 20s. And and I've come to see that actually as a pretty important inflection point in the history of the globalization of, um, of the garment industry. So I don't think it was a coincidence. I don't think it was sort of a, a feature just of my own psychological development that that's when I tuned into something happening. I think that's sort of historically when something quite important was happening in the, in the field of international trade um, when it came to garments. But basically I came to clothing as a topic to write about, I think from this combined investment in clothing as something really wonderful and, and an important source of pleasure in my own life. And also this incredible site of, exploitation, um, both of labor, particularly the labor of women, and also of natural resources, uh, certainly in the present moment, and also um, historically, and and a site where one could dive into a lot of the questions that to me are some of the more important questions today, questions that have to do with the legacy of imperialism and the legacy of the oppression of women and and the, the legacy and kind of ongoing reality of the exploitation of natural resources in a way that's not sustainable. Mm. 
I'm excited because we're going to get into a bunch of those topics that you've just raised. Um, but to sort of provide a foundation for our discussion, um, obviously, I've already mentioned that the book covers kind of five key fabrics to um, offer us a way into these questions and discussions. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about kind of how you chose sort of which fabrics to focus on, you know, why five, why these five? Um, tell us a bit about that. Sure. I tried to create a grouping that was constitutive of all textile fibers, really. I mean, it's true that some aren't included. I've seen, for instance, clothing in my research made out of salmon skin and peacock feathers. And you could argue that things like hemp aren't exactly covered in the chapter or the section about flax. But basically, I wanted to create a pretty sweeping um kind of taxonomy of the major types of textile fibers. So silk is a big one. Wool is a major one, whether it's sheep's wool or mohair or cashmere, uh, cotton and synthetics, which includes things made from petroleum or things made from wood pulp, just things made from a chemical process. And what am I missing? Linen, which is sort of where I grouped all of the major fabric types made from plant fibers. But there was sort of an ulterior motive in this selection of fabrics, and it was ways that I thought I could effectively group the major themes of the book. So in a way, the section on linen is really a deep dive into the story of women's labor. And cotton is is really about imperialism and colonialism. And the section on silk is really about luxury and fantasy and mythology and advertising and sort of the stories we tell about fabric. And the section on synthetics is really about labor and the globalization story. And the section on wool is really about a return to kind of older, more small scale methods that people in the present, practitioners in the present are turning to. Mm. Thank you for explaining the kind of groupings and also the themes that they speak to. Um, I think I'd love to start with the theme of kind of women's labor um, and gender roles. Um, And I was wondering if you could tell us about kind of, uh, we we might think of that as being very much a today story, and it is. uh, But one of the great things about the book is that it connects sort of the past and present in useful ways. And one of them is uh, you talk about guilds, medieval guilds, early modern guilds. Um, and the creation of clothing, and gender. So can you tell us about kind of how all these things come together, and especially in a lot of ways seem to kind of set up ideas about which genders do which work, um, and who gets compensated for it? Sure. Um, So, well, I guess I'd go back a tiny bit further to to note that um, there's a general um, sense among um, archaeologists that a lot of um, a lot of early textile labor was performed by women. One theory goes that this is because it's compatible with child rearing, so it's something that's not dangerous that you can do with a kid around. But this is kind of going back um, back in time to where there's the record is a bit hazy, and where I really start the labor story, I think as you say, is is with this story about guilds. So 
guilds structured the economic life of the Middle Ages, and they determined who controlled the production and distribution of different goods. And at this very particular moment in time, the moment when guild production is really coming under threat by proto-capitalist modes of production and distribution, women were forcibly ejected from guilds. So they had a presence in guild life, including textile guilds. And in this moment when guilds came under threat, there was this kind of parallel motion to to, to sort of expel women from economic life, not only from the life of guild involvement, from but from economic activity more generally. And this is happening sort of in parallel with the Enclosure Acts and in parallel with this shift from subsistence farming and subsistence um, lifestyles to needing to have access to the wage in a cash economy. So there's a way in which the setup for the system of labor that we now use to produce our garments, so that's going to come into being with factories, comes into being even earlier with the expulsion of women from the money economy, just as money is becoming all important. And the kind of way that women are produced as an economic underclass in this moment really still is with us today. Hmm. And I guess, why, why were women specifically targeted? Like, why was it gender that was kind of the cleavage, I suppose, that um, was the response when guilds became threatened? It's a good question and one I can't answer fully, but I think that there's an instructive story in the story of the Linen Guild, which is one that I obviously found a particular note because I was writing about linen. So there's this wild um, phenomenon that historians note at a certain moment in the life of the linen guilds where linen guildsmen were really low. I'm speaking about mostly in what was to become Germany, which was a major, major site of linen production in the Middle Ages. And so linen makers were sort of, it was almost like a dirty word. It was like better better to be a hangman than a, a linen maker. And there was this taboo around uh, around linen and historians looking into it have, have posited that the reason that this was a taboo trade was that unlike wool guildsmen who had really tightly controlled the manufacture of woolen goods, linen guildsmen hadn't been effective enough in making sure that linen wasn't also being made and produced by families in the home. So by farm families, say, who could eat their own, uh, the produce of their own agricultural labor and therefore have a little linen shop going in the house and undercut guild prices with those products, which is, of course, exactly what happened and exactly what became more and more threatening as traders came through starting to provide a market to, to this small cottage production. So basically the reason that linen guilds people were considered sort of less than was, some historians argue, the fact that they were being 
that, that it, they weren't effective enough at keeping family labor out. And so there was this real frustration with this comp- source of competition that was focused on family labor and rural labor, particularly not, not of the city. And eventually this anger, as guilds became more and more um, threatened and the, the competition became more and more frustrating and sort of an existential threat economically to guilds, that, that accusation of, of the family or the farm or the rural producer being the problem came to focus on women. And I don't know why that is. I th- one guess is that it's just, I don't know, some place to put your frustration and also a concrete way to pr- uh, produce a situation where there are less producers, right? If women are kicked out, then that's less competition. But I don't have, I don't have a, a real answer to that question. And I think it's an important question. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I know I found that fascinating to read about and understand um, the different forces going on, as you said, the proto-capitalists and the guilds, um, and especially kind of the urban-rural divide. There are a whole lot of things going on there. So thank you for explaining it to us. Um, I'd love to kind of move forward, though, in time to the Industrial Revolution, which um, you are argue in the book that we should maybe think of it as a fabric revolution. Why? Well, I, I think it... <laughs> It has to be seen that way, I think. And I, I think because most simply because the earliest uh, factory, as we would now understand a factory, as in a place where you gather together machines that are too big and expensive for any one individual to own in their home into a big building and get a bunch of workers in, was a, a factory to turn um, cotton into thread. Uh, or or wool into thread. So these all of these early factories were in fact to produce thread, and all of the earliest industrial machinery was in one form or another to to spin or to weave uh, cotton or wool into into thread or textile into cloth. So that that said, I I think it's important not merely to think about the technical side of the industrial revolution as a fabric revolution, but also the political side. So one of the things that I think is key and is a, is a history that I try to provide in this book is that if it weren't for the fact that England, if England hadn't already asserted political control through, through violent coercion over the Indian subcontinent and gained access to first Indian cotton textiles and then cotton as a raw material, they wouldn't have had the ability to kind of parlay these machines into machines that would change the course of global economic history. It was a kind of combination of technical advances and political power and those two things together, I think, are what produced the Industrial Revolution. And, and it really did begin with textiles. And one of the reasons for that is that textiles produced the capital that could then be invested in the railroads. It wasn't the other way around. And the reason for that is that textiles are something that there was already a global market for. It's one thing to have the ability to produce 
a new industrial good. But unless there's a ready market for that, you can't really get anywhere. And so textiles were something that people already used, already wanted and needed. And the British were able to tap into this huge market by both being able to produce on on a scale that was unprecedented through the use of these machines, but also to kind of strong arm both the buying and selling side by, by kind of the fact of their global empire. So it was those two things coming together, I think, that are really important to be, to be seen together when we think about what the Industrial Revolution really was. It wasn't just advances in technology. It was advances in technology in combination with global power. Hmm. And these things um, stay together in a lot of senses um, as empire continues and independence uh, movements start to try and break away from this. And so one of the emblems of this, quite literally an emblem of this, was in the pre-independence flag of the country that became India. Um, Today, we see still a circular emblem in the middle of the flag. Um, But it was for quite a while, that circular emblem was actually a spinning wheel. Why? Well, for a couple of reasons. Um, One, so Gandhi was a critical mover in the independence movement. And one one of the things that made Gandhi such a good communicator was that he understood there wasn't a shared language. So what became the country of India, the subcontinent was made up of a bunch of different language groups that had sort of been forcibly brought together by the fact of British imperialism. And so he had to adopt a really visual communication style through symbols and was really effective at doing that. And one of the symbols that he used was the image of himself at a spinning wheel. And he, he used this act of spinning and the act of producing his own garments to wear as a way to dramatize his belief that India needed to become self-sufficient in the creation of its own goods, and in particular of its own textile goods, in order to achieve actual independence. He didn't think that a kind of political independence from England would be sufficient if there wasn't also self-sufficiency on the level of the material. And he chose the spinning wheel and textiles for this very reason that, as we've been discussing, the British very forcibly destroyed, broke down a really complicated, vastly productive system of textile manufacture that had existed on the Indian subcontinent before their arrival, and which was a huge source of wealth for that region of the world. So what Gandhi was trying to emphasize was that the act of imperialism wasn't just a political act, it was an economic act. And the response needed to also be an economic response. And that's why it was so critical for him to focus on self-sufficiency in textiles. Of course, he had a very particular vision of how that ought to go and was very invested in the small producer, not the industrial factory, which ended up really being the, the way that in that part of the world, textiles were to, were to be produced. But that, that's sort of another story, um, although it, it, it is connected because the Gandhian vision of small producers really wasn't the outcome of the independent struggle. It was big textile factories that would come to dominate 
um, that landscape, even though there are still it, still today small small producers and people arguing for the value of that kind of production in India. It wasn't the dominant form and it still is not. Hmm. Well, speaking of ancient systems um, that are intricate and create lots of wealth and are highly specialized and technical, um, I'm going to move our discussion geographically over to Hangzhou in southern China, um, which, of course, was the center of the silk trade, um, famously the Silk Road, um, among other things. And yet today, southern China is still known for clothes production, but cheap factory clothes, not incredibly highly skilled luxury silk handmade goods. Um, Can you tell us about that transformation? Sure. It's also sort of a story about global imperialism. And I I suppose the the most immediate um, moment to think about with the transformation of Hangzhou is really um, 1978 when Deng Xiaoping opened the, the, the economy of communist China to the, to the world. And when suddenly there was this huge demand for goods produced very cheaply in that part of the world, namely garments. But if it hadn't been for sort of a previous round of, uh, of industrialization, that wouldn't have been, wouldn't have taken off as fast as it did. And that round we can sort of trace to the opium wars where Western powers forcibly insisted upon access to the Chinese economy and set up silk filatures in Shanghai. And filatures are where you take a silkworm's cocoon and you unspool the thread and put it onto reels. And that reel of of silk thread can then be exported to a factory that can make it into silk stockings or silk um, fabric. So that was in the early 20th or late uh, 19th, early 20th century that factories really got going in Shanghai. And that started to shift the way that silk was made. So rather than um, moving on a sort of local scale from the producer of the cocoon to reeling the silk to weaving the silk, it became a situation where a lot of silk was being exported in thread form. But as you say, this is a part of the world that for that, that, that traded with the West on a very different basis for many, many hundreds of years, traded with the West on the basis of producing an extremely high-end product, who, uh, the manufacturer of which they had really a total monopoly for, for, for a lot of years, and, and which was a really, really unique, globally sought after commodity, which is why the Silk Road has this kind of mystical property to it still. And it it was quite sad to be in Southern China, which is not really part of the Silk Road, but rather part of the kind of what's called the the triangle region, they call it. um, And it's basically where the environmental conditions are ideal for the production of the type of mulberry tree that silkworms really flourish on. And so it was a region where some of the most fine silk goods were produced. And and that region now, because of the growth of factories and and now cities, um, isn't able to sustain 
mulberry trees in the way that it could. And so there's very few left and very limited ability to create any silk at all, which is heartbreaking, especially to those people who live there who made their livelihoods in silk and can remember a time when even post-industrialization, there was still the ability to grow a lot of silk in that region. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hmm. I think one of the things that's coming out from this is there's a lot of similarities across sort of time and space um, in addition to obviously the kind of specific differences, there there's some threads here uh, to excuse the use of the fabric um, fabric word. Um, but there's kind of one that I'd like to sort of keep pulling on a little bit, which is in some senses going back to Gandhi, right? Who we know uh, most famously from things like strikes and um, that kind of protest. Um, and so I'd like to kind of stay on that idea of of fighting back against these imperial. Um, impositions, political, economic, etc. Because one of the things you talk about in the book are some really quite large and sustained strikes in the early 20th century that are specifically um, around textiles, textile workers, um, some of which have obviously become quite famous, usually due to tragedy. Um, But you go well beyond the kind of few known ones and look at this um, more broadly. So I was wondering, What can we learn from these strikes kind of in this particular time period with so many people um, coming out in this sort of action? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple main things to take away. And and one of them is quite promising and one of them is quite ominous. I think one of the things that I, I would wanted to transmit in this section is that it is possible for garment work to be good middle-class work. I think often the way it's talked about whenever we have a factory collapse today, there's people saying, oh, it's just like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York City. And this is how garment work always is. It's always exploited, underpaid women working in precarious factories. And the truth is that was not the case for a lot of the 20th century. The International Ladies Garment Workers Union was extremely successful in setting up conditions that made garment work really good, safe work with benefits, with cultural opportunities. And they did that through a lot of skilled organizing work through thinking really big through incredible bravery and enduring a lot of violence especially in the early years so there is a sense in which looking at the 20th century um, story of labor action in garment history is really a story that tells us it can be done this doesn't have to be sweatshop work but i think the other side of the story um, and this came more for me when looking at the history of not garment labor, but textile labor. So people working in factories that make, rather than clothing that make fabric, these were mostly located in the American South. I mean, originally in the American North, they kind of migrated to the South. 
And that was when um, the big strike actions of the 30s that I detail occurred. And this, the, these were ultimately unsuccessful, even though very hard fought. And I think one of the, the takeaways for me from that story is that striking workers are never just fighting against their employers. Because what we saw in, in, in those strikes is, is that it's not just the employer, it's also the state government, in many cases, actively willing to send the National Guard in to control the strikers. It's the local newspaper actively willing to publish disinformation about the aims of the strikers. It's the extra legal violence. It's vigilantes hired by the factory bosses. So it's it's a whole range of violent forces that the striker contends with. And I think that needs to be part of the story because unless it is, it's hard to understand why workers can't win sometimes. And now, of course, we're looking at a globalized system where in order to do something like the International Ladies Garment Workers Union did, where they're they're kind of demanding that you work with a union shop, if if workers were trying to do something like like that in Bangladesh today, for instance, which by the way there is a lot of really interesting labor action going on in that part of the world, they have to think they they're working within a system that is so thoroughly globalized that it's much more difficult because. Uh, a big buyer can simply say, okay, well, we're going to Vietnam now, you know, and, and, and be gone the next day. So it, it's an incredibly light footed industry and can move from place to place. And, and that that's because of, you know, the particular global trade laws that we've set up. That's not a fact of nature, but that is the way the global system uh, has been kind of arranged so that it is very easy for manufacturers to kind of skip around the world to find vulnerable pools of labor. So I'm sorry to end that on a sad note because there is room <laughs> for hope in this 20th, 20th century story too. There really is. Well, maybe we'll get to that. Um, but I think we'll stay in the more depressing 20th century for a while um, just to continue our chronological journey. Um, and I'd love to kind of this idea of sort of global systems and how things are set up because uh, the Cold War obviously is uh, certainly was a global system for a while. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us about the part of the book where you look at the American textile industry and how it was impacted by essentially American foreign policy trying to stop communism. Yeah. So after the end of World War II, Japan was occupied by the Allied powers under General MacArthur. And one of the opinions of the American State Department was that the faster Japan could be re-industrialized, the least um, threat um, that it would fall, quote unquote, fall to communism. So their goal was to re-industrialize Japan as fast as possible. And Japan had had a lot of textile factories. It was a major part of its export earnings. And all of that had been destroyed by the war. So priority number one became to give Japan back a textile industry as fast as possible. And that was achieved by building up infrastructure, by literally building textile factories. And it was also achieved by massively subsidizing the sale of American cotton to Japan. So there was a lot of cotton sitting in American warehouses after the war that needed an outlet. And it was sent to Japan to make cotton fabric that then had to go somewhere. 
And Europe didn't want to start undermining its own industries by buying Japanese textiles. And Japan had traditionally traded with China, but the State Department also was trying to limit that trade because they didn't want they didn't want Japan to become communist. So what they did essentially was to open U.S. markets to Japanese cotton textiles, which was something that the U.S textile lobby strenuously objected to. And this had traditionally been a pretty powerful lobby, but they were really um, outgunned essentially by this, this kind of Cold War boogeyman. And this wasn't just Japan. After Japan, it was sort of, it was Korea, it was Taiwan, it was Hong Kong. It was a range of countries that the U.S. State Department helped to protect with a military umbrella, with funding for building ports and roads. And these countries, too, ultimately became big producers and exporters of garments and textiles. And all of all of those goods would would flow into U.S. markets and continue to undermine um, undermine the textile industry and ultimately also the garment industry of the U.S., causing the loss of 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 thousands, if not millions of jobs, about about a million jobs, I would say. I mean, that's a very rough figure, but it's a huge amount of job loss that occurred. And it, it was hard fought against by by textile interests. But ultimately, yeah, that Cold War concern kind of trumped everything in that moment. Hmm. Staying on the topic of U.S. foreign policy for a moment, can you tell us about the Caribbean Basin Initiative and its impact? Yeah, so this was a trade deal set up under Reagan to basically allow unimpeded garment imports into the U.S. from countries in the Caribbean basin if, and this is a big if, if they're made with with textiles manufactured in the U.S. So it's kind of like a, a way to try to do something for U.S. textile interests while also helping U.S. garment manufacturers compete from Asian competitors because basically labor costs in the Caribbean basin are so low that they can now afford to compete with Asian labor costs. So basically, it was it was sold as similarly um, to the Cold War scenario, a way to kind of prevent this, you know, leftist drift in the Caribbean basin. It was it was part of a policy that was openly afraid of, yes, sort of what was happening in other parts of Latin America and and was going to save, again, quote unquote, um, these economies from drifting towards more leftist alternatives by providing all these jobs. However, the jobs were in export processing zones that that allowed no opportunity for growth, really. They were not good jobs. And ultimately, the treaty was set up in such a way that it made it impossible for local entrepreneurs to produce clothing companies that could export to the U.S. So they basically became annexes for U.S. clothing producers to send, you know, cut, sometimes even cut fabric down to these countries to be stitched and returned. So they're not actually producing technological advances. They're not actually taking inputs from the country. They're just using it as sort of an offshore sweatshop. And it allowed uh, the perpetuation of really the same power dynamic between the U.S. and these countries 
that was perpetuated by by the export of raw materials. And sort of Reagan's whole rhetoric was this is going to be better for these countries than exporting raw materials like sugar or coffee or bauxite or whatever. But really, it was export of, of raw materials. It was just export of this unskilled labor at really, really low rates. So ultimately, it, it wasn't something that helped those economies. And it also continued to undermine the um, the industry in the U.S. So, so the garment manufacturers that were still trying to hire laborers in the U.S. were increasingly threatened by having this whole vast network of offshore sweatshops, essentially, that were easily accessible to, to brands in the U.S. Well, we did sort of promise, and I'd like to follow through on it, to uh, not just have depressing things from the book mentioned in let's the interview. Let's try. <laughs> let's try. So let's move over to wool. Um, can you tell us about uh, wool, fiber handicrafts? Why have they become more popular? I think there's a few reasons. Um, one is that in a kind of post-industrial landscape, there's a lot of latent desire in people to make stuff, I think. People like making things with their hands. I know I do. I teach a course um, at Pratt here in New York um, that involves a lot of making things physically out of textiles. And almost invariably, my students, when I ask them why they're in the class, they say, because I just want to make something with my hands. You know, these are students who might be working mostly on computers, either writing or they're doing graphic design, but they're not actually physically ever touching anything that they make. And so this is something that I think all people, may, maybe maybe just some people, but I would, I would argue all people really crave on some level. Some people also point to the internet, which has provided not only a place for communities to form over you know, knitting or hand spinning or whatever it is, but also, you know, the spread of information, the sharing of resources to occur in a way that it couldn't pre-internet. But I think it has a lot to do with the desire to make things with the hands and also maybe just some fundamental way in which spinning, weaving, sewing, uh, or raising sheep is uh, maybe just kind of part of our deep a psychic inheritance and something that gives a lot of pleasure for some reason. I mean, we know that one of the basic senses, right, is touch, um, mm-hmm. touching nice, soft things. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it sounds maybe silly, but I don't think, you know, that, that that's really quite heavily built into, um, you know, our non-thinking brain, like our just absolute base. Babies like touching soft things. You know, absolutely. And I mean, there are people who hook, hook, you know, people's brains up to machines while they're knitting or spinning. And it's demonstrable what happens. It's incredibly calming to Mm. spin or um, to knit. So there there is something that's, you know, you could call it similar to meditation that Mm. is is happening really actively when when you have something like that in your hands. Mm. Well, one thing. additionally, hopefully on the positive side, (laughs) that I'd love to ask you about is um, obviously not everyone is able or interested in uh, making cloth or clothing. Um, But pretty much everyone, I think that's a reasonably fair assumption, um, wears clothing. 
um, and probably has to make some amount of decision about dressing themselves. Um, and I really love the word you use to talk about this. You talk about make dressing heartening, mm. um, which I really loved as a word. Um, I think that encapsulates so many things that maybe things like joyous or happy, like doesn't quite fit in all of those connotations. Um, So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that. How can we make dressing heartening, um, even if we can't spin or pet sheep or tear down global capitalism? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it is a wonderful um, aesthetic process to get dressed that's that's for me I feel it's an opportunity to play with color and form and that sort of kind of pre can pre-exist any research or I don't know political involvement just that there is I think just acknowledging that there is this aesthetic pleasure in it or that there can be um but I think to me um even if one is not interested in making a garment, there is a lot of opportunity to engage with people who are involved in making garments. So I think it is pretty much possible, no matter where you live, to find somebody within your town who's making stuff and maybe buy something from them or maybe support them in some other way. I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that we should all exclusively buy from our neighbors. It's not really feasible, but I think if we open our eyes and look around, it's kind of remarkable what's happening even just in the past few years with people trying to produce clothing in ways that are more sustainable for um, not just the environment, but also for the worker. So I think kind of taking a peek what's going on nearby can be heartening. And um, I think that for those people who are kind of research-minded, as I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast are, it is sometimes really important to um, think seriously about where things come from and about their histories. And that, for me, was this impetus to for writing this book and and it could be an argument to like yeah read my book but sure but but also I think an impetus to take clothing seriously enough as a commodity or as an object to think about its origins for you know a, a little while even if it doesn't become you know your life's project to to take it just a little bit more seriously I think there's a real um for whatever reason it can even be like a point of pride sometimes with people to say that they don't care about clothing you know like oh I don't think about what I wear it it doesn't matter to me as though that makes a person more serious minded or more ethical but I I don't think it's serious minded or ethical to to not think about your clothing I think it's um actually a little bit of um of something that maybe would shrink down the world um so to open the world back up and to engage with some really big histories and some really big economic and environmental and technological and aesthetic questions and histories can be part of um, of what to me makes dressing heartening. Because I don't know, every every single garment contains a story. If you're in a 
if you're in a thrift shop and I'm a big thrift shopper, it's a, it's an archive. It's, it's a fascinating history lesson. So I'm also not advocating everybody start thrift shopping, but if you are interested in thrift shopping, consider not only that you might find something to wear, but that it's an incredible and fascinating education in 20th and 21st century history and thinking like, okay, why is this 80s looking thing from Korea? And then this 90s looking thing is from Guatemala and this 2010s looking thing is from Vietnam. There is a story there. So I think for people who think of themselves as not interested in clothing, maybe maybe you are interested in trade history. And maybe that could be your avenue into just thinking a little bit more about this object that we kind of take for granted. What a wonderful answer um, about how we can think about our clothing, think about our choices, think about what's around us, think about what's happened. Um, Really, I think there's a lot of food for thought for people just in that one answer. Um, But I am going to be cheeky and ask you a few more questions before I let you go. Um, One of which is kind of a favorite of mine to ask because it's really fascinating. Um, This is obviously something you've worked on quite a lot, Um, investigated many different angles, uh, the connections of a lot of different things. And I know that as a reader, I certainly learned a lot from the book. Um, But I'm wondering if in this kind of process, if you could invite us behind the scenes, maybe, is there something that you came across that you found particularly surprising or unexpected? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I don't know that the project was motivated by anger, but there was certainly a lot of anger present for me as I went about this research. And I think part of me half expected somewhere in the course of my travels or my reading to find, to find like the evil guy, the evil guy behind it all, you know, like the villain. And I mean, I certainly came across a lot of tragic stories and a lot of stories that are very disturbing, but the people I met, and I met a lot of different factory owners and industrialists and managers, and I didn't meet the evil one. You know, I met a bunch of people kind of trying to make a living in the context that they were in and like driven by economic pressures and maybe their view of their situation was a little bit constrained by what they had seen and known. But I didn't meet the person that I could say, you know, even, even some of the people doing things to the soil in Texas that I thought were kind of nightmarish, like they were really sweet guys, you know? So, so it wasn't like possible to say, okay, this is the, this is the really, really bad guy here who's out to wreck the environment or out to oppress their workers. Um, I, I don't mean to say there's no such thing as culpability, but I think I was left with a feeling of sort of a network in which all of us are bound together and, um, and people really are doing the best that they can um, in a lot of situations that produce these massive structural problems and even evils. But I didn't meet the one evil guy, if that makes any sense, that maybe I half expected I would. Yeah, I, especially when these networks of things, you sort of um, think about, okay, well, uh, maybe they'll let me into this factory. Oh, look, they've let me into this factory. And then maybe there's going to be the person who sat at the desk looming over everything. Um, and turns out, I guess, not so much. 
Um, so I really just have one question left to ask. Um, and this always feels a little bit mean when books have just come out, uh, given how much work goes into uh, any book. But I was wondering, uh, the book is out, people can read it. Is there anything that you've got your eye on that you're working on now or thinking of working on next? I am eyeing a, a new project um, that's a little bit inchoate at the moment. So I think I will tell you instead about the short-term project that I'm working on, like literally today, because it's so fascinating to me and so funny how the world works. So yeah. my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, um, was a sex therapist kind of really early on, kind of this... Um, what we would today maybe call pathbreaking um, woman who wrote a book in the late sixties called sex before marriage. And there's a British imprint that wants to reissue this book. And I offered to write a preface to the book and I've been working on that. And one of the things that she regretted later in life, um, and my mother and my aunt have told me about this, is the way that she speaks about homosexuality, which just to give you a, a picture of how she speaks about it is listed in a chapter called, I think, um, Sexual Deviance. Um, ah. So, I mean, she herself ironically had female partners later in her life. Um, she was quite broad-minded in many ways, but I think for whatever reasons, maybe publishing imperatives or maybe for the sake of her professional career. She kind of towed the line about the way she spoke about about homosexuality. And so I wanted to offer her like the later her or some other versions of her the chance to speak in that preface and to, to give, you know, without necessarily forgiving that, to give a little more context to the reader. And, and also it's given me a chance to just revisit this really weird and fascinating book that unfortunately is deeply relevant again today because it's it's sort of written in a pre-row America. So there's a, a long mm. chapter about how to deal with an unwanted pregnancy where she's basically telling women to like fly to Japan to get an abortion if they can. And all of a sudden, all of this stuff that seems laughably old fashioned is now like deadly relevant again. So it's really a strange and fascinating experience to revisit this piece. And that's what I'm working on at the moment, the preface mm. to sex before marriage by Eleanor Hamilton, my granny. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's one of the more interesting answers I've ever gotten to that question. <laughs> um, so thank you for sharing that and um, all the insights you've given us. Um, and so to remind listeners, the book we've been discussing is titled Worn, A People's History of Clothing, um, just out in 2022 from Penguin. Um, Sophie, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's really been a treat to be here. <laughs>